Tonight we're going to talk about the next world ruler, but before we do, let's begin with a word of prayer. Loving Father, I want to thank you for bringing each one of us out here tonight. Lord, we are interested in this topic of who the next world ruler is going to be. And Lord, we need you to guide our hearts and minds. We need wisdom. And we're claiming the promise of Jesus that if we seek the truth, and if we come to you and ask, you will give us the desires of our heart. And Lord, we are claiming that promise, and we're asking you to do that. Help us to understand. Give us wisdom. And help us to know what you would have us do in these last days. And we pray and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12 says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. This is the blessed promise from the last chapter of Revelation. Here is the great hope of humanity that we have been talking about, the return of Jesus Christ. And my personal conviction is that is not far off. The book of Revelation talks about a time when the whole universe will sing, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Someone who has a kingdom is someone who reigns. Human political leaders are are continuously grasping for earthly kingdoms, but the kingdoms of this world will rise and fall. They will crumble into insignificance, but God's kingdom is eternal. Tuesday night, we talked about Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, and His disciples came to Him, and they were looking over the city of Jerusalem, and He gave Him the signs that would be right before His return. He talked about how there would be wars and rumors of wars, pestilence, famines, earthquakes. But while Jesus was talking about all of these things, these last day's events, He made a very fascinating statement. And I'd like to read that to you. It was in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Jesus said, Therefore, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by who? Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him what? Let him understand. Did you catch that? He said, let us understand what Daniel the prophet said. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the reasons that people don't understand the book of Revelation is because they don't realize that out of the 404 verses in that book, 276 of them are quoted from the Old Testament. They don't understand that the key to unlock Revelation is the book of Daniel. You can, you can bang on a door. You can kick a door. You can try and knock a door down. But then somebody comes along with the key and says, oh, let me help you with that. And they open the door, right? Doors that are locked are easily opened when you have the key. And the key to understanding the book of Revelation is embedded in the book of Daniel. And so by the end of the message tonight, we will tie the prophecies of Daniel and the book of Revelation together And you will see how these two books complement one another. We are going to look tonight at an amazing prophecy that predicted four nations that would rule the world. You will even see three of those identified in the book of Daniel. And you will see how it predicted the political state of Europe today. It is a prophecy that was given 605 years before Christ. And yet, it has accurately predicted two and a half millenniums of history right down to our very day. This prophecy proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Bible is inspired by God who is in control of history. And that history's biggest event is just around the corner. And so tonight, let's go back 2,600 years into an ancient king's bedroom. 
One night, King Nebuchadnezzar of ancient Babylon had a dream. But when he woke up, he couldn't remember the dream. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah, it's happened to me. But this was a dream that Nebuchadnezzar couldn't remember. But he knew that there was something significant about that dream. He knew that he needed to understand what he had dreamt. Daniel chapter 2 verse 1 says, Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. And so the king was more than a little bit troubled by this dream. And so he got out of bed, and he had all of the wise men in the kingdom called together. All of the magicians, the astrologers, the soothsayers, and the Chaldeans, he had them all brought to the royal palace. And he said to them, tell me what I dreamed and tell me what it means. In other words, I need to know what the significance of this dream was. And of course, all of Babylon's brain trust was there. There were the astrologers. They were the people that believed that they could tell the future by reading the patterns in the stars. There were the occult artists. They were the people that, that felt like they had supernatural power and that they could communicate with the dead. And then there were the Chaldeans. They were the really smart people. They were the PhDs of their day, if you will. And notice that it was the Chaldeans, the really smart people, that replied. And they said to the king in Daniel chapter 2, verse 4, O king, live forever. I like that. You want to butter up the king? O king, you're so great, you should live forever, right? And then they say to him, King, tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. Friends, if the king would have given them the dream... They could have made up just about anything, right? Anyone here at any point in their life ever look at their horoscope? You look at those things and they're so vague that you can apply it to yourself, right? Or you go to the Chinese restaurant and you get one of those fortune cookies and you look at that and you can apply it to yourself somehow, some way, right? But these wise men were proving that they couldn't connect with the stars. They couldn't connect with, the, with their gods. They, they couldn't communicate with the dead because if they would have been able to, then they would have been able to tell the king his dream. And so the king got upset. I can't remember what the dream was. It was mysteriously taken from me. And so he puts these guys to the test. He says in Daniel chapter 2, verse 9, Therefore tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. In other words, he's saying, don't play games with me. You guys have been on the payroll. You guys have been claiming that you have supernatural power. You've been claiming that you can communicate with the gods. You've been telling me that you can tell the future. Now prove it to me. Tell me what I dreamed. And it was the Chaldeans, the really smart guys, who began to protest. Daniel chapter 2, verse 10, they said, O king, there is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. And you know what? They were right. There is not a person on earth who could tell the king what he had dreamt in the privacy of his bedroom. Only the God of heaven could reveal the dream of the king. And only the God of heaven could accurately and precisely reveal the future. And so the king became very angry. And in his anger, he made a decree. He said that all of the wise men of Babylon were to be killed. And soon the news of the king's decree reached Daniel. Daniel was a Jew who was one of those that was, was uh, brought from Israel to Babylon in captivity. And uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed Israel. And now Daniel, a Jew, who was, if you go back to Daniel chapter 1 and you read about that, just before this, he had been made one of the wise men of uh, Babylon by the king. And so even though Daniel, for some reason, 
The Bible doesn't tell us why. It doesn't explain it. But apparently, Daniel wasn't there when the king made a decree. Maybe he was out on an errand for the king. Or maybe the Babylonians didn't consider him a wise man when they went and gathered all the others and brought him to the royal palace. But for some reason, Daniel wasn't there. But now Daniel finds out about this decree. And because he's one of the wise men, he is included in that. And so he goes to Arioch, the executioner, and he says, Why am I being killed along with everybody else? And Arioch explains to him the dream of the king. And so Daniel went before the king and he said to him, O King Nebuchadnezzar, give me a little bit of time. Let me go to the God of heaven and let me pray and ask him to reveal to me the dream that you had and its interpretation. And for some reason, King Nebuchadnezzar gave Daniel that time. Perhaps he wanted so badly to know what he dreamt that he was willing to do anything, but he gave him that time. And sure enough, in a night vision, Daniel was given the dream and its interpretation. Your friends, this was an answer to prayer right? What a powerful lesson that that is for us. If we want to know the truth, we need to go to God in prayer and ask Him. And He promises us He will lead us into the truth. He will answer your prayer. And I hope that every night before you come to these meetings that you have been praying and asking God to help you to see the truth, to hear the truth, to understand the truth, and to give you the courage to follow the truth. And after this revelation, Daniel prays again. Daniel chapter 2, verse 23, he says, I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might. And then Daniel went back in before the king. And he said to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, no wise man, no astrologer, no magician, no soothsayer, nobody on this earth can tell you the thing that you want to know. But there is a God in heaven, he said in Daniel chapter 2, verse 8, who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. So brothers and sisters, this prophecy takes us down through the stream of time. It takes us from Daniel's day through the nations of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. It takes us down through the divided empires of Europe. And it takes it down to when? Down to the latter days. Now Daniel is about to unveil This prophecy that stands as one of the keys to unlock the prophecies of Revelation. And so let's dive in. And Daniel continues. He says to the king, You, O king, were watching. And behold, a great image. This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed together and they became like chaff on the summer threshing floors." The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And then the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And King Nebuchadnezzar was absolutely astounded. You can imagine what's going on in his mind. Yes, Daniel, that's right. That's what it was. Now I remember. Now I see it in my mind. And Nebuchadnezzar was so excited. Can you imagine what was going on in his mind? He must have been pretty shook up. Daniel had just told him what God had revealed to him. And he had actually come out and said that God was revealing the future to him. He even told him the thoughts that he had. 
that Nebuchadnezzar himself couldn't remember. And when Nebuchadnezzar realized that Daniel revealed exactly what he had dreamt, do you think he was ready to trust his interpretation? You bet he was. Of course, he was ready to trust that interpretation. And now Daniel gives him the meaning. A meaning that is so remarkable that this prophecy alone has turned countless skeptics into believers. Daniel says in chapter 2, verse 37 and 38, You, O king, are a king of kings. You are this head of gold. Now let's pause for a second here and let's have a little bit of a history lesson. Does anybody remember what kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar ruled and reigned over? Babylon, that's right. He was the king of Babylon. And that head of gold represents Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. The Babylon empire is well chronicled in history and they ruled the world from 605 bc to 539 bc nebuchadnezzar established one of the most fantastic and incredibly wealthy kingdoms in the entire world the hanging gardens of babylon are one of the wonders of the ancient world Babylon had a temple of Marduk there. It was 300 feet high. And the outside of it was covered with glazed blue tile. The inside was overlaid with gold. The temple contained 18 tons of gold in the altar and the throne alone. No wonder God said to Nebuchadnezzar, You are that head of gold. Babylon actually had a 20-year food supply within the walls of the city. Babylon was so powerful that it became a model for the late Saddam Hussein. His ambition was to bring Iraq into dominance in the Middle East just like Nebuchadnezzar had done 2,500 years earlier. A CNN war correspondent by the name of Peter Arnett said this about Saddam Hussein. The exploits of Nebuchadnezzar had and have a profound effect on how Saddam views the world in general and Israel in particular. Eric Klein, a historian and archaeologist at George Washington University said this, the picture could not be more startlingly clear. Saddam has used as a blueprint for his life the exploits of Nebuchadnezzar. The question is whether it is possible to predict from this what Saddam will do in any given circumstance. The evidence is clear. He will sacrifice everything for his ambition to destroy Israel, to become the leader of the Middle East, and to leave a legacy of greatness in his buildings. And why? Because that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar had done. He had destroyed Israel. He was the leader of the then known world. And he left a legacy of greatness in his buildings. Klein goes on to say, Saddam also portrays himself as the successor of Nebuchadnezzar. In 1979, he was quoted by his semi-official biographer as saying, Nebuchadnezzar stirs in me everything relating to pre-Islamic ancient history. Of course, you understand that ancient Babylon is what we call Iraq today. In fact, Babylon was physically located an hour and a half south of where Baghdad is today. Time magazine describes Saddam's love of Babylon and his admiration for Nebuchadnezzar this way. Saddam had himself photographed not long ago in a replica of the war chariot of Nebuchadnezzar. The Babylonian king whom Saddam apparently reveres as his hero, despite a bout of insanity which is recounted in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar made his name in history by destroying Jerusalem in 587 B.C. and driving its inhabitants into 70 years of captivity. It is a fair warning. In other words, what Time Magazine is saying is, look, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Israel. And Saddam Hussein is going to try and do the same thing. 
Here's a photograph that Time magazine was talking about in that article. It was taken by a United States military officer in the deserts of Iraq, not far from ancient Babylon. Notice that right behind this portrait here of Saddam Hussein is this image of Nebuchadnezzar. God's Word predicted that Babylon would be destroyed and never rebuilt. Nebuchadnezzar built these walls right here. But notice back here, Saddam Hussein started to try and rebuild Babylon. But Saddam should have read the Bible. Especially in the prophet Jeremiah. Notice what Jeremiah said in chapter 51, verse 37. Babylon will be a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals, an object of horror and of scorn, a place where no one lives. He went on in verse 64 to say, Thus Babylon shall sink and not rise from the catastrophe that I will bring upon her. Just as the prophecy predicted, Babylon would be destroyed and never rebuilt. Neither Nebuchadnezzar nor Saddam Hussein or anyone else will ever be able to accomplish that task. Now the four medals of Nebuchadnezzar's image, the gold, the silver, the brass, and the iron, they represent four world-ruling empires which would rise one after the other. And so this one prophecy... We, in, we are, in this prophecy, we are taken from the days of Daniel all the way down to our present time with no missing links. The Bible says that after Babylon, that head of gold, another kingdom would rise, this time represented by its chest and arms of silver. Now, Nebuchadnezzar probably wasn't too happy about that. Right? When he was hearing about how he was the head of gold, he was probably pretty excited. But now he finds out from Daniel that his kingdom is not going to continue to rule the world forever. And Nebuchadnezzar just really didn't like that prophecy. In fact, if you have ever read Daniel chapter 3 in the story of Daniel's three friends being thrown into the fiery furnace, you'll remember why they were thrown there. Because right after this, Nebuchadnezzar has a giant statue erected out in the plains of Dura. And does anyone remember what that statue was made out of? Pure gold. And so what uh, Nebuchadnezzar was trying to say is, I don't like God's prediction of the future, and so I'm going to have my own. And that statue being pure gold was Nebuchadnezzar's way of saying, my kingdom is going to rule the world forever. But alas, it wasn't to be. Prophecy predicted that Babylon would not rule the world forever. And speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel said in chapter 2, verse 39, After you shall arise another kingdom. And sure enough, in 539 B.C., the Babylonian Empire gave way to the rule of the Medes and the Persians, commonly referred to in history as the Persian Empire. I want you to notice that on this statue, this chest and arms of silver, there are two arms there. One for the Medes and one for the Persians. They were two separate kingdoms, but they made an alliance. And they came together and they conquered the world. And history reveals exactly how they did it. In Daniel chapter 5, King Belshazzar... Nebuchadnezzar's grandson was having a drunken feast with a thousand of his lords. And in the middle of the party, while the wine was flowing, while the music was playing, while the girls were dancing, God interrupted Belshazzar's feast. And suddenly there was a hand seen writing on the wall. Anyone ever heard that phrase, the handwriting is on the wall? That's where this comes from. And here's what it said. Many. Which means God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. 
and Perez or Eupharsin, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Friends, the Bible is absolutely accurate and incredibly explicit. And that very night, the Medes and the Persians came in and they took over the Babylonian Empire. On that very night, Cyrus, the the general of the Medes and the Persians, captured the city of Babylon. And if you remember the first night that I talked about a rich resource that was running right through the middle of Babylon. Do you remember that? We talked about a river, right? Does anybody remember the name of that river? The Euphrates. That's right. That river came right through Babylon and right out the other side. And what made this kingdom almost impossible to conquer was that that river was going through there. They had a 20-year food supply. They had constant water. So anyone who tried to, to siege against it couldn't outlast them. But while Cyrus had come to take on Babylon, what he did is he had his soldiers go upstream and dig a large irrigation ditch. And then they dammed up the river and they rerouted the river. And when the water went down, Nebuchadnezzar just took his army and walked right down into the riverbed and walked right into... uh, There's a, a set of gates there on that river. They opened the gates and walked right into the city and they took them in one night. And the fascinating thing about this story is that God gave the prophet Isaiah a prophecy 150 years before Cyrus was even born that this was going to happen. I want to show you this. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 44. That's going to be page 836 in your seminar Bible. The prophet Isaiah is a major prophet, and if you take your Bible and go... Roughly right to the middle of it, that's where you will find the book of Isaiah. And I'd like you to notice what it says in Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 21. The Bible says, Remember these, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. Because of the rebellious hearts of the Jews, God had allowed them to go into captivity. But here, God is telling them, yes, you're in captivity, but I have not forgotten you. And notice what it says then in verse 26. Who confirms the word of His servant and performs the counsel of His messengers, who says to Jerusalem, You shall be inhabited. To the cities of Judah you shall be built. And I will raise up her waste places. Here we see that what God is telling the Jews is yes, you have been taken into captivity and I have allowed you that to happen because of your rebellion. But I have not forgotten you. And I am going to allow you to be able to go back to Jerusalem, back to the cities of Judah, and I will raise up the waste places. Well, do you know who ultimately gave them the the decree to allow the Jews to go back to Israel? It was during the time of the Medes and the Persians. And so here it's talking about a time when the Persians would take over the world and the Jews would be allowed to go back home. Now look with me at verse 27. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. So how was it that Cyrus was able to conquer Babylon? By drying up the deep. By drying up the river Euphrates. And Cyrus is here named 
150 years before He is even born. He is my shepherd. He shall perform my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, You shall be built. He was the one who ultimately was going to allow them to go back to Israel, to allow the Jews to return and the foundation of the temple to begin to be rebuilt. Isaiah chapter 45 goes on to say more about him. It says, Thus says the Lord to His anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before Him, and to loose the armor of kings, to open before Him the double doors, so that the gates will not be shut. Cyrus was able to go right through the doors of Babylon by drying up the Euphrates rivers and he conquered Babylon in one night and he allowed the Jews to return to Israel. Now let me tell you how this happened. In fact, let me go, let me go back here a little bit to this picture. I want you to notice something here. The, 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 the city of Babylon was considered to be impenetrable. The, the walls of the city were so wide that you could run two, uh, two sets of chariots side by side all the way around it. And when they built the walls of the city, they, bought it, they brought it right up to the edge of the river. And what they did is they continued the wall then over the river and they took down by the edge of the walls of the river, they built brackets in there, and they built iron gates. And then they lowered those gates down into those brackets, and then they took the iron gates and pushed them out into the river. The river was deep, and the river had a a very strong current. And so when those iron gates went out into the river, the current just pushed them against each other, and no one could open those gates But when Cyrus drained the river, he just simply walked down in there and took a hold of those two gates and just opened them up and walked into the city. All right, let me get back here to where we were. This is a picture of a document in the form of a clay cylinder known as the Cyrus Cylinder. It is a historical record written in rock that was discovered by the British in the Middle East. In, the, in this record, the Bible record is validated. It, is, it describes how Cyrus attacked Babylon, how he dried up the river, and how he allowed Israel to go free. But the Persian Empire wouldn't last forever either. The prophecy goes on to say in Daniel chapter 2, verse 39, then another a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all of the earth. And does anybody know what nation it was that was responsible for overthrowing the Medes and the Persians? Amen. It was Greece. History tells us that Greece was the power that was symbolized by those thighs of bronze or brass. Greece reigned the world from 331 to 168 B.C. The Greek armies dominated the world in their bronze armor. They had bronze helmets, bronze breastplates, bronze shields, and bronze-handled swords. In fact, the Bible even names this great power in Daniel chapter 8. Now, I just want to say to you that Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7... And Daniel chapter 8 are parallel prophecies. And we're going to talk more about that later. But you remember what we talked about on that first night. That that we have to... One of the keys to unlock Revelation is we have to realize that the book of Revelation is not chronological. It's not talking one event after after the other. But we have to use the pan and zoom principle. And that's exactly what God is doing in those parallel prophecies. And notice that it says here in Daniel chapter 8, verse 21, And the male goat is the kingdom of what? Of Greece. It, it, It names them. And the large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. 
And who was that large horn or first king of Greece that overthrew all other empires and overcame the world? You may remember his name from your history classes. It was Alexander the Great. And so in Daniel chapter 2, bronze represents Greece, that third empire. And then in Daniel chapter 8, it talks about a power described as the male goat that would trample down Medo-Persia. And the Bible actually names Greece as that power. And if we think about the comparisons and the parallels between those prophecies, in Daniel chapter 2, you had four metals representing four kingdoms that would rule the world. In Daniel chapter 7, you have four beasts. And in Daniel chapter 8, you have the male goat and the ram. And we're going to get into more of that later. But this is the pan and zoom principle that we mentioned as a key to understand Revelation. And so we see this great image outlining world history before it happened. The Babylonians represented by that head of gold. The Medo-Persians by the chest and arms of silver. And Greece by the thighs of brass or bronze. And then Daniel chapter 2 verse 40, Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, finally there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. And there is no historian who would ever say that this is anything but the iron monarchy of Rome. It was the kingdom of Rome that overthrew Greece in 168 B.C. after which Rome ruled the world. The great English historian Edward Gibbon wrote in a book that he, he, uh, he did called Decline, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And notice what he says. The Im- he's not even a Christian. But he says the images of gold, silver, or brass that might serve to represent the nations and their kings were successively broken by the iron monarchy of Rome. Rome dominated the ancient world. All of Europe, the Middle East, and down into South Africa from 168 B.C. to 476 A.D. You may remember that it was in the days of Rome that Jesus was born as a baby in Bethlehem. You may remember that it was Joseph and Mary fleeing a Roman oppressive empire when they traveled down into Egypt. You may remember that Jesus was tried by a Roman governor and killed by Roman soldiers. For more than 500 years, Rome appeared to be invincible. Her flag waved from the British Isles to the Persian Gulf, from the North Sea to the Sahara Desert, from the Atlantic to the Euphrates River and beyond. It was one of the largest kingdoms in the world. But even this empire was destined for trouble. Because in Daniel chapter 2, verse 41, God revealed that just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a what? A divided kingdom. The Bible didn't predict a fifth world ruling empire to rise after Rome. But instead it predicted that Rome would become divided. And according to this amazingly accurate prophecy, another single world empire would not follow Rome. The feet of iron and clay represent the dividing of the Roman Empire, which is exactly what history tells us happened. In the middle of the 4th century, barbarian tribes attacked Western Europe and the Roman Empire was divided into 10 divisions. Now, let me ask you a question. How many toes do you think were on that statue in Daniel chapter 2? I'm just guessing, but I'm going to say 10. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, there were four beasts that represented the the, uh, four ruling empires of the world. And 
It's interesting that as we pan and zoom across history and we go into Daniel 7 and we look at that, God zooms in on some details. Now, out of the four kingdoms, which one was Rome? It was the fourth, right? In the statue. And in Daniel chapter 7, there were four beasts. And Rome was the fourth beast. But when God zooms in and He gives us some details, we see that that fourth beast has ten horns. But God goes further than that. He gives us even more details. And it says, Then another horn, a little one, came up among them. And it says that in order for that little horn to come up, it had to pluck out three of the ten. And so here we have a list of the divisions of Rome that we still have today. The Alemannis are known today as the Germans. The Burgundians, the Swiss. The Franks, the French. The Lombards, the Italians. The Saxons, the English. The Suevi, the Portuguese. The Visigoths, the Spanish. And those three tribes, or those three nations that were plucked out by that little horn were the Heruli, the Ostrogoths, and the Vandals. And they are extinct today. Let's do a little bit of a review for a moment. Babylon was represented by that head of gold. Persia, the chest and arms of silver. Greece, by the thighs of brass or bronze. Rome, Rome by the legs of iron. And I think the reason there were two legs is because Rome was both a secular and a religious empire. And divided Rome was the feet and the iron of clay. A man in Europe once asked his pastor, how do you know that the Bible is true? And the pastor said, that you're standing on it. The young man said, what do you mean? He said the, that the Bible predicted that the, that the ten divisions of Rome would always be and you're standing on it. And so the prophecy goes on to say, In Daniel chapter 2, verse 43, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Did you know that the reason that Europe is not one large nation today is because God said that it wouldn't be? It's not one big country, but it is the division And it says that they will mingle the seeds of men, but they wouldn't adhere to one another. Let me ask you a question. What do you get when you mix iron and clay? You get clarin? No, you don't get anything. Because iron and clay don't mix, right? Throughout the history of the kings of Europe, they attempted through intermarriage through the mingling of the seed of men to reunite the empire. But the Bible predicted that these efforts to reunite Europe into one empire again would fail. This is a picture of the Fredericksburg Castle in a small town near Copenhagen, Denmark. And inside this castle is an amazing fulfillment of Bible prophecy. As soon as you walk into the door, you see this family tree of Europe. And what it shows is the fascinating record of intermarriages, just as the Bible predicted, between the royal families in an effort to reunite all of Europe. One famous example of this is when Napoleon divorced his wife, Josephine and married Louise of Austria as a part of his effort to unite all of Europe. But as prophecy predicted, he utterly failed. Remember what the Bible said? Daniel chapter 2, verse 43, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another. Charles V wanted to reunite Europe, but he failed. Charlemagne wanted to reunite Europe, but he failed. Napoleon wanted to reunite Europe, but he failed. 
Political leader after political leader attempted to reunite Europe just like the Bible says that they would. They desperately hoped to bring those divided toes back together. But they didn't realize that they were fighting against the very Word of God. Now just a couple of days ago as I was preparing for this meeting tonight, I went online and was looking at an online encyclopedia. And I'd like you to notice something that I came across. It says, The ideal of the Roman Empire as a mighty empire with a single ruler continued to seduce many powerful rulers. Charlemagne, king of the Franks and Lombards, was even crowned as Roman emperor by Pope Leo III in 800. Emperors like Otto I, Frederick I Barbarossa, Frederick II, and Charles V French King Louis XIV, as well as French Emperor Napoleon I, among others, tried to a certain extent to resurrect it, but none of their attempts were ultimately successful. And that's exactly what the Bible said was going to happen. Despite the greatest attempts by great men, the future outlined by Bible prophecy could not be altered. Napoleon once wrote in his journal, There will be one Europe, one currency, one language. There will be one government over all of Europe. But in June of 1815, when he was defeated at the Battle of Waterloo, notice what he said. God Almighty is too much for me. One historian talking about these great prophecies of the Bible and talking about Napoleon specifically said this. What was the principal adversary of this tremendous power? By whom was it checked and resisted and put down? By none and by nothing but the direct and manifest interposition of God. In efforts to unite Europe, Napoleon was fighting a battle against God Himself. And then there was Hitler. His motto was one people, one empire, one leader. And for a time it appeared as though he would unite all of Europe. But then in 1940, the Allied forces had their backs against the wall at Dunkirk. And I'd like you to notice what history says about that in May 1940 during the Battle of France. It says the British expeditionary force in France, aiding the French, were cut off from the rest of the French army by the German advance. Encircled by the Germans, they retreated to the area around the port of Dunkirk. The German land forces could have easily destroyed the British expeditionary force, especially when many of the British troops, in their haste to withdraw, had left behind their heavy equipment. For some unexplained an unknown reason, Adolf Hitler ordered the German army to stop the attack, favoring bombardment by the Luftwaffe. Some say it was because Hitler was still hoping of establishing diplomatic peace with Britain, while others contest that the unfavorable terrain, which was not suited to armor vehicles, and a strategic German desire to retain strength for future operations was the real explanation. But this lull in action gave the British a few days to evacuate by sea. Defeat seemed certain, but for some unknown reason, Adolf Hitler stopped the attack. What was it that stopped Hitler's tanks? An ancient prophecy in Daniel chapter 2, declaring that from the days of the Roman Empire, Europe would never be united again. But friends, Bible prophecy predicts in the book of Revelation that there is going to be one last attempt to unite Europe. And this time, it's going to be under a religious political union. Revelation chapter 17, starting in verse 12, says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet. Remember the image in Daniel chapter 2? It had ten toes. And here we see ten kings. 
but the iron and the clay would not be united permanently. And while these ten kings here in Revelation once again represent the nations of Europe and the rest of the world coming together in a confederation. And now check out what this verse continues to say. But they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. Here is the significance of this prophecy. For a short period of time, the nations of Europe and the rest of the world are going to enter into a religious political confederation just before the coming of Jesus Christ. And notice how Revelation describes this temporary unity. These are of one mind. And they will give their power and authority to who? The beast. This is the first beast of Revelation chapter 13, otherwise known as the Antichrist. They are of one mind. They give their power and authority to who? To the beast. To Antichrist. And you'll remember we talked about that already. And so here is a prediction that for one hour, this is a prophetic hour, it is a short period of time, the nations of Europe are going to come together again. And are there any movements in to reunite Europe today? This is a flag of the symbol of the common market of Europe. Their motto is, many voices, one people. Here is the euro. It is a result of an effort to seek to establish one common currency in all of Europe. Revelation tells us that there's going to be one final attempt to uh, unite all of the people politically to prepare for the beast power, the Antichrist, that unites them religiously and politically under the authority of one great system. And the idea is so sweetly presented. A united world. A united society. We all become one. And the Bible says that they are all of one mind. And they give their power to the beast. Revelation chapter 17, verse 12 through 14 continues. It says, These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. Friends, the reason why that we are not interested in an earthly kingdom is because God has promised us a heavenly one. The prediction here in Revelation chapter 17 goes on to say, For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are called chosen and faithful. History has followed the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2 like a blueprint. And what has been accurate and confirmed by history will be just as clearly accurate in the future. The political workings of, of this planet are not random. Daniel's prophecy says Babylon rises and falls. Medo-Persia rises and falls. Greece rises and falls. Rome becomes divided into the ten divisions of Europe. And an earthly power rises to unite all of Europe at the end of time. But this is merely another sign that Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, is coming soon. His return is the only hope for a world standing on feet of iron and clay. Daniel's prophecy of the image and Revelation's prophecies point us forward to something better. Daniel chapter 2, verse 34 says, You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. I ask you the question, what is this rock that smashes the feet? I tell you, it is none other than the second coming of Jesus Christ, the rock of ages. We can have no confidence in earthly kingdoms. They rise and fall. They are only temporary. They appear for a time and then vanish away. Daniel chapter 2, verse 35 says that when this great rock comes down and smashes and crushes the image, that the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all the powers of the earth become like chaff, like dust on the threshing floors, and the wind blows them away. 
and they are gone forever. Nothing on this earth is secure, friends. Everything on this earth is temporary. But can we trust in a kingdom that will never fall? Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 says, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Now, where did that stone strike the image? Was it in the head? Was it in the chest? Was it in the thighs? Was it in the legs? No, it was in the feet at the time of divided Europe. Now, do you understand what this prophecy is telling us? It is telling us that we are in the very tiptoes of the toenails of the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2. And the next world ruler is going to be none other than Jesus Christ Himself. Friends, we need to open our eyes. We need to see the signs of the time in which we live. Because the day described by Revelation chapter 15 is not far off. I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. And these were loud, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Babylon rises and falls, but his kingdom will last forever. Medo-Persia rises and falls, but his kingdom will last forever. Rome rises and falls, but Christ shall reign forever. The Roman Empire is divided. The European common market is rises and it falls. A one world government attempts to rise, but it falls. Because a prophecy in Daniel chapter 2 is pointing to a day when the kingdoms of this world will crumble under the glorious appearing of that everlasting rock of ages, Jesus Christ. Now friends, I want you to imagine for a moment a line from eternity past to eternity future. And I want you to imagine your life on that line as a dot. Friends, isn't it time for us to prepare our hearts to meet Jesus? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? To have all of its comforts, all of its conveniences, and all of its pleasures, and to yet lose your soul? Would you trade that line of eternity for a dot? One of the reasons that God gives us prophecy is so that we can know where we're headed and we can prepare for what is coming upon the world. Friends, I don't think that you are here by chance. You have a divine appointment and God has a message for you. And it is a message of hope. It is a message of mercy. But it is also a message of warning. And that message is, wake up. Get your house in order. Stop doing what you know you shouldn't be doing. Start doing what God wants you to do. Jesus is inviting you to a life of following Him. And yes, it does involve a cost, but it also offers peace. The peace of God which passes all human understanding. Friends, do you want that peace tonight? From this revelation in Daniel chapter 2, God has revealed who is ultimately in control. Man may wield his might. It might appear that they will have the final say. But it is God who sits enthroned in the heavens. It is He who has declared they shall not cleave together and no man has ever been able to cross that boundary. Jesus declared in Luke chapter 20, verse 18, Whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but whomsoever it falls on shall be crushed and ground to powder. Oh friends, this world is in trouble. For, for centuries, man has made an effort to make a better life, but man is powerless 
to change the current of things. The leaves of the past world orders have fallen. What we need is the coming of Jesus. We ought to pray that prayer. Thy kingdom come. Without the prophecies of Christ to describe the end of the world and the setting up of God's eternal kingdom, this world has no hope. But now that we see that God is enthroned, and we can thank God that man doesn't have the final say, the stone is coming. Christ is getting ready to set up His eternal kingdom. Oh, friend... Do you want that rock to fall on you? Or are you going to fall on the rock? Will you raise your hand towards heaven tonight and say, Lord, I want You to be the Master of my life. I want You to rule and reign. I want to surrender my life to You. Is that You? Oh, praise God. Let's pray. Oh, loving Father, Lord, You know our hearts. And You told us, Jesus, that if we would remain connected to You, that You would give us the desires of our heart. Lord, we want to be in Your kingdom. We want eternal life. We want to love You like You love us. But Lord, we need Your help. We live in a corrupt society. We live in a world that is falling Lord, we see that You are coming soon. And we want to surrender our hearts to You. And we want to pray that You would prepare us for the coming of Jesus. Oh Lord, help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.